Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the MOH podcast. This is Jim Patton, and we're on podcast number eight. And we have another uh, tape from Winky this week. This one was uh, a very old tape, as most of these are. It seems to have been from around 1971, and uh, unless I miss my guess, which uh, that's all it is is a guess, but I think this was a message that Winky gave to a uh, probably a conference of youth pastors. It was a, it was designed obviously to help them to better serve the youth in their youth groups, and it's a very powerful message. And uh, I'm happy to present this one for you. So here it is. Uh, this week's podcast message is called "Change Your Name or Change Your Conduct." We talked about three false pictures of sin. No hope of us ever going into detail onto all the areas and difficulties and reevaluations. I'll leave the reevaluation of your own respective theologies to you and to the Lord. I'm just throwing out the thing and hope to challenge you into thinking in a totally different way as you read the Bible. One thing will excite you is you'll kick out all the divisions in your mind when you get finished with it. It'll be one gospel. From Genesis to Revelation, you won't put Old Testament preaching and New Testament preaching and epistles preaching and Revelation preaching and Acts preaching. You'll see the men of God all say the same thing, and they say it with power. Now, in the book of Luke, there is a story, matter of fact, three stories put together that are also very important parables. You'll find Luke chapter 15. And again, we have three things. We have a lost sheep. We have a lost coin. We have a lost son. Those three things cover all three divisions of God's kingdom, the animal kingdom the physical, inanimate kingdom, and the moral kingdom. They all tell us one thing. There is something lost, and there is somebody or some, someone looking for that. The sheep is lost. The shepherd is looking for the sheep. The coin is lost. The woman is looking for the coin. The son is lost. The father is out looking for his son. Why does the shepherd look for the sheep and carry him home on his shoulders even though that sheep has been foolish? Because he's a shepherd. That's why. Why does a woman look for a coin that she's dropped? And when she finds it, has such a big party, she probably spends more on the party and excitement than the coin was worth. Because she's a woman, that's fine. <laughs> Why is the father out looking for his son? Because he's a father. That's why. And you'll find an interesting thing. I, I actually use this as a message. One of the messages I've used probably more often in churches. If I come to your church and I find a bunch of selfish kids settled down, I'll use this one. The sheep was lost. They'd lost different ways. This one is lost by a carefree attitude. Sheep didn't want to go with the rest of the sheep, thought it'd run off and do its own thing. 
The coin was lost by carelessness. And the sun was lost by calculated choice. And as there are three lost things, three kinds of young people sit in front of you who are lost, three different kinds of ways. We have the kid who always wants to do his own thing. You always have a kid in your youth group that always is doing something rebellious. You know, he's always off, away from somebody else, always getting into trouble, always the one that's turning people's hair gray. He's always off doing his own thing someplace. Every now and then you find a kid who doesn't want to run with the crowd. He says, you know, all right, you do your thing, but I'll do mine. Just leave me alone. You get here the hard ground, the bitterness thing. The seed fell on. There are many young people who have a devil-may-care attitude about life and about God. And they always seem to be trying to be the worst kids around. And the reason why this is because very often these same kids with a hard face dodge police bullets, beat up each other in gang fights, these same kids have deep, deep loneliness and longing in their lives. They are bitter, they've been hurt, they have not forgiven. And the way I know how to break through to a bitter kid is the twin plows of love and laughter. And I use Christian humor as a weapon. I believe when young people are laughing, their guards go down and I'll smash it as hard as possible right after that. And love wins. Love wins. You can weep over a bitter kid, convince him God really loves him and cares about him. Just talk about it, show it to him. I've stood in front of kids and said, I'll die for you if I could get you to, the, to give your life to Jesus Christ. If I could get you to heaven by my death, I'll do it. Carelessness. There are some people who think you can be carnal and still make it. Here we have the whole carnal Christian philosophy, and a little while later we're going to get into this, try and deal a death blow to this thing. How do you reach the careless sinner, the kid who sits and heard the message so many times? To do this, you must shock a young person into seeing that it is not enough just to believe in Jesus Christ. The Bible never says believe unless the context says repent. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Has been made in this generation to do as much work for the devil as it has for God. By pulling it out of its explanatory context, by wresting the text from its context, which is a broken, repentant man in jail calling out of the top of his lungs, what do I do to be saved? There's no good to preach to unsaved people who are not broken, not repentant, believe. You may as well tell the devil to believe. You've got to use God's great schoolmaster to bring them to Jesus, the law. Now, the law can't save anybody. Nobody is ever saved by the works of the law. We'll come a little later and show you why it can't do that. The law has great weaknesses. The law is just, it is holy and good. 
But once a man breaks it, the law can't help him. The law can only pass out justice, death, and sentence. That's all it can do. The law can't sanctify, it can't pardon, it can't restore. It can only deal death to the man who's broken it, or deal life to the man who has never broken it. And once you break it, you've had it as far as the law is concerned. We'll come back into that in a little while. How do you preach the gospel to the careless sinner? In your manuals, you'll find a little section under... Andrew, and Andrew deals with how to preach the gospel in the context of the message we've been sharing with you during the week. Andrew is not, doesn't contain a soul-winning plan or something. It deals with the message. And uh, Catherine Booth has something to say. And AN4, which is under Andrew, to whom does the Holy Ghost say believe, this great war of God said, last century? Acts 16.31 Now mark, not to all sinners indiscriminately. Here is the grand mistake in the teaching of this age. As a hundred years ago, we've come full cycle, we're right back there again. These words are wrested from the explanatory connection and held up independently of all the conditions which must ever and did ever in the mind and practice of the apostles accompany them. How can an unawakened, unconvicted, unrepentant sinner believe? As soon as Satan might believe, it is an utter impossibility. It is useless and as unphilosophical as it is unscriptural to preach only believe to such characters. And Christians have not done their duty and have not discharged their responsibility to these souls when they have told them that Jesus died for them and they are to believe in him. Oh, dear, no, they have a much harder work to do, and that is to open their eyes to a sense of danger and make them, by the power of the Spirit, realize a dreadful truth. Their eye of the soul must be open to such a realization of sin and such an apprehension of its consequences as shall lead to an earnest desire to be saved from it. Now, there's our weakness. We always want to give kids a... 15-minute soul-winning plan that will result in instant evangelism. And what happens? We get instant evangelism, just like instant coffee, instant Christians. A pinch of evangelism, a pinch of tract, add a little water, rush them through a prayer, and what have we got? Biggest amount of garbage in the churches you've ever seen. What did the Jesus call the Apostle Paul to do? Rise, I have set you on your feet to be a witness to the Gentiles whom I now send you that you may open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. That's our job. That's our task to the careless man. It's easy to win the unconvicted it's easy to win the convicted, broken kid. You just say believe to this man. He hates his sin. He wants to know a way out of it. He says, how do I get out of this thing? I hate what I've done. I've struggled. I've fought against that thing. And I'm not out. Then you say believe. You don't say to a person who doesn't care, doesn't think anything about sin. You don't say believe to him any more than you say, do you want to be saved to a guy who doesn't think he's drowning? Now, when a guy is dying and, he's, and he suddenly sees he's drowning and he's screaming out, help, help, then you say, do you want to be saved? So, 
That's that. Use the law. Preach. God's right on the life, the selfishness of sin, the rottenness of breaking God's heart and God's laws till kids begin to see what selfishness has done to them and to God and to others. And then, choice. This is the last one, calculated choice. This kid went out and joined the in crowd. Happiness and happy in his father's home, he went out and joined the in crowd. Partied around with all the boys, see? It's fine until his money ran out. In every church you'll find an in crowd. We actually had this as a session, but we didn't have enough time, so we cut it out. The in crowd is called the people pleasers in the sheets you have in front of you. You have to tell this young man in the in crowd, tell him by preaching that the Lord Jesus Christ demands all or nothing, that his father heart is broken by living to please people and putting up this phony front. You have to deal with the in crowd until the in crowd becomes the out crowd. In other words, until it is no longer popular to be super cool and non-Christian. That's how you have to preach. Get some kids and work with them and preach with them until you get some holy kids. Till it's no longer popular to be unholy and to lead the thing. So that when a kid goofs off, the Christian kids will correct them and say, uh-uh, we don't buy that, man. Not going to do that, see? And when you're in crowd, becomes the out crowd, a lot of them will join the up crowd, which is Jesus' crowd. You say, what if a kid, after seeing God's love and seeing all of this, refuses to surrender to God, just will not do it? There is this thing in the Bible on this. First of all, you preach. See, you give him the message. He understands, he rejects. You go and see that kid personally. You talk to him personally after praying. Finding a good time, you go to him personally. You lay it out personally to him. Sunday, you see how much you've broken God's heart. See? See how much God loves you and how wise he is. He could guide your life. See? You're willing to give up your selfishness. If he says no, the door is there. Then you take another Christian, another kid from the group that loves him and is praying for him. You go and see him. Both of you see him. And you say it again. Bob or John or whatever his name is. Why don't you give your life to God? You're hurting him. See? He says the door is in the same place. Close it on your way out. And what do you do? Then you nail him publicly. Next time you preach, you stand up and, and after God is anointed, and when there is power and you know the Spirit of God in the meeting, you say, Bob, how about you? It's your time tonight. Name them publicly, see? You've broken God's heart too long, Bob. You can't run on like this. Publicly, sitting right there. And then what if he doesn't repent? And you treat him like a heathen and a publican. And what does that mean? It means that they have no fellowship with him, but that doesn't mean they reject means we can't knock around with you, Bob, until you get your life cleaned up. The moment your life comes 
We have open arms waiting for you, bro. But no way until you do. Sometimes that kid will have to be kicked out. And that's a terrible decision. You asked Tony about that. You've got to get that in crowd out of your church if you've had it. Bible tells us man is on trial. I've been to some of the largest churches in California. I see one of the largest ones in the whole lot. When in the church youth group, they went through their whole singing program and everything. I got up and God had burned on my heart the in, the in crowd message. Call the people, please us. Hammered out on that thing. Spirit of God was with us. I gave an invitation. I said, how many of you know you're not really Christians? You're phonies. You've imaged people. That's your whole life. Would you believe that 70% of that youth group are never Christians? And the guy who'd been running the singing and had been in charge of the whole thing stood up and broke. And he said, I've never been saved. I've been a phony all these years. But every preacher's never nailed me. They've gone all the way around me. They've said, believe, believe, believe. But today I got hit right between the eyes and gave his life to Jesus Christ. Another church in Northern California, God laid this message on my heart again. I went in and preached. God did a clean sweep of the kids. Finished, and a boy came up absolutely broken, sobbing, sobbing, sobbing. He said, I have been a phony all these years. And he said, it's getting worse and worse. He said, today, just before I come to this meeting, I went out to my friends, and we smoked a couple of joints. And he said, I've been sitting here, and here he is, and the key kids in the church. God broke him and smashed him, put his finger on an in-crowd kid. You read through that people-pleasers thing. That's the way I preach it few illustrations in it, and pretty much just like that. And it'll sweep the decks. Now those, those, those uh, messages there will scare you to death. There are three of Charles Finney's sermons, counterfeit conversion, done in modern language, some scripture research put in there. You preach those, brethren, and you'll see some results. You, kids, you really love your kids and prove it to them, and then preach with power. You watch what God does. You know what, to have a key kid in your youth group, somebody's been running the thing for two years and just smash in front of you and say, God, help me, I'm lost. That's something, man. That's what you read about. We don't hear too much about today. All right. Quickly now, let's move on to the conditions. Three conditions. I've given you some sets of three here. Three conditions of salvation. I want you to understand now the relationship between the law and the gospel. They are not antagonistic to each other. But the law is sure antagonistic to the sinner. God's great means of conviction is to use the law as a schoolmaster to drive men to Jesus Christ. Let me show you the relationship of the law. When the Bible uses law, it uses it in different senses. Sometimes it uses it meaning the basic law of the universe called love. More often it refers to the Ten Commandments, the written law of God. The relationship between the Ten Commandments and the law of love is that the Ten Commandments are the letter of that thing and love is the spirit of that law. Do Christians live by the law? No, they don't. They live above it. They don't live beneath it, for goodness sake. The law for the Christian is the roadway on which he walks in his service to God. The sinner lives underneath the road. 
He is under condemnation of the law because he's breaking it all the time. Does the Christian need a list? Of course he doesn't need a list. This is a list. Do I as a Christian have to get up every morning and read the Ten Commandments to see what I have to do today for Jesus? No way. I love him. He guides me and directs me. Do I still need a list then? The only reason I need a list is to define for me the feelings I have. Make sure that the feelings I have are not just existential Jesus feelings and real Bible commands. Do you see that? The only reason a Christian needs a list is in reference and in preaching. He doesn't need it as the law of his life. Do you see that? The Christian then is not under that written list. But he lives by it. He fulfills it. He goes above it. The Christian is not somebody who has kicked out the Ten Commandments. He does anything he likes, and God somehow doesn't see what he's doing. That's botany. Jesus didn't do that. The disciples didn't do that. But today we have some new Gospels going around, and that's what we're going to have to deal with. Now, the, the distinction between this, the Bible says, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. And the word flesh, again, is used in its moral connotation, selfish. No selfish man can be justified. If you were in the works or the process of the law, and you were put through the process of the law or the works of the law, you would have to prove two things to be justified by law to the judge. You'd have to prove, first of all, that you didn't break it, that you didn't do the crime that you're accused of. Then the law would justify you. You see, the law gives you justice. And justice is that which you deserve and have a right to demand. That's justice. All right? You'll see the weaknesses of the law in a second. Secondly, let's say you did do it. There's only one other way you could be justified. You'd have to prove you had a good, true, sufficient reason for doing what you did. Say you're accused of murder, you'd say, well, it was self-defense. He attacked me, I just picked up this thing and held it off and it killed him, see? And if it was a good enough reason, true reason, couldn't be a lie, and was sufficiently, you know, good enough to, to uh, justify what you've done, you could be justified. You could say, listen, I demand my rights within the law. I demand justice, and you get it. See that? Let me ask you a question. Do you have anybody on the face of this earth that could stand before Jesus Christ and say, I have never been selfish? Then scratch one. Secondly, do you any, know anybody who could stand before Jesus and give him a good reason for being selfish? That was true and sufficient? Scratch two. This is the way I do it with kids. I'll say, listen, if God pulled a big screen down out of the sky and he started replaying your thoughts and your mind and your actions before you, could you, would you like to stay around for the screening and the whole universe watching what you've done? You stand there and you say, oh God, I don't really know what you got me here for. I really haven't been that bad. Which one of us would like to stand here and have God put his screen on us? 
Everybody wants to watch everybody else's, but nobody wants to watch theirs. Do you see how powerful this is? And when you say sin, the Holy Spirit will say, lust, cheating, stealing, he'll put his finger right on You don't have to know everything about the kid. You just have to know what his life is like according to the Bible. I said to, to a kid, you know the trouble with you is? You're selfish. You run from the truth. You're deceitful. You tell lies. You're a phony. The guy said, oh, how do you know so much about me? I said, oh, well, I know, you know. I got a friend, see? And... I read the Bible. I know what the Bible says a sinner is like. I simply say, that's what you like. He says, wow, you know. Old Chinese man, he said to this mission, why do you bring me that book here that tells me what I'm like inside? Take it away. No flesh can be justified by the works of the law. And not only that, if you have broken the law and you appeal to the law for justification, you're in bad trouble. Have you ever heard the little kid and he steals a cookie, and his mother says to him, what did you do? He says, nothing. He's got it behind his back. She says, you didn't take one of those cookies. He says, no. Trying to crumble it up so she can't see it, see? Let me ask you a question. Does this move the mother's heart towards mercy or towards justice? You watch the sinner... Try and justify himself. When God comes zeroing in with the law, see? You watch him. He'll throw it up. And the Bible put in a whole chapter to blow that. The whole book of Galatians is given to blow that thing. You can't make it by appealing. The human race is already guilty. Romans was written to prove that. Every man individually before God has made selfish, rotten choices. You can look back in your life and remember the ones. Now understand, there is only one way that this man can be pardoned, and it is not by justice, it is by mercy. The grounds of that mercy cannot come from anything at all that this man does. Nothing a man who has broken the law can possibly earn him the right to have a pardon. It cannot come from the sinner. The grounds of mercy. See that? It can't come from the sinner. There's no way it can come from the sinner. You can promise all kinds of things and offer to pay back everything and that will not earn for you a pardon. There is no way to be justified by the works of the law. Do you understand that? All right? The grounds of mercy comes from the grace of Jesus Christ. God who is rich in mercy. The great love wherewith he hath loved us. See, he has done a beautiful thing. Listen, you know why we preach so much on sinners not like this? If I could not help my sin, and I just broke it because there was no way I could get out of it, then I could ask on the basis of justice that Jesus Christ should be crucified. If the only way that I can obey God is by God offering His Son as a sacrifice, then I can demand of God. I say, if you want me to obey you, then you must send Jesus Christ if you're fair and just. See, that's justice. But what say I could help breaking God's law and I broke it. And Jesus came to die for me nevertheless. That, my friend, is undeserved favor. 
Bad, my friend, is grace indeed. Do you see what a proper conception of sin does to your conception of grace and love? It makes God's grace so much more beautiful, so much more fantastic, so much more merciful when you see just how big the guilt of sin is. Some people, sincere people, who really think they're preaching grace do not have proper concepts of sin and their grace has turned into justice in kids' heads. Now watch. Because God, out of His free grace and mercy, has been willing to forgive man, He has had to do two things. He's had to find a substitute for the penalty of the law. Now every law must have one of these things. Drive through a red light, traffic cop comes out, little cherry on his car, pulls over and he says, would you like a ticket to the policeman's ball? Doesn't he? You break a law, you won't be given advice, you'll be given a penalty because every law has a penalty. If there is no penalty, there is no law. It's only advice. Murder somebody? Policeman says, ah, that wasn't a good idea, was it? Make sure you do better next time. That's advice. There must be a penalty to make a thing a law when you're talking with moral beings, okay? God can't simply throw out the penalty that sin deserves because if he did, he'd throw out the law. He'd just say, well, my law is good advice. Practically, that's what's happened in people's heads when Christians have thrown out the penalty. See? But God wanted to find something he could put in place of the law that would have as much effect on upholding this and also have the same effect that a penalty would have on a sinner. This is all in, these are the facts, just in that tiny little uh, thing, and also under your Andrew. It's dealt with in detail so you can get the idea of it. What is the purpose of a penalty? Is it to change a person's heart? Make him loving? Go and ask the man who's been in prison for 15 years whether it does that. No, it isn't. The only purpose of the penalty is to punish the guilty and to protect the innocent. That's the only purpose of a penalty. And it is to uphold the law which guards people's happiness. That's the purpose of a penalty. It cannot forgive. It has nothing inside it that will make a man's life change. God wanted to find something he could put in the place of this so he would not have to sentence man to death. And yet he couldn't just throw it out. So what would you do if you were God? On one hand, you are just. And you have to serve the sentence when men have broken your just laws. On the other hand, you are a father and your father's heart is filled with mercy. And you long to show pardon to the sinner. You see, the penalty doesn't help the sinner. It only helps the rest of the universe that hasn't broken the law. How do you help this man and still protect the rights of the universe? How do you do that? If you were God, what would you do? Say you were, you were a judge in a court and your own son was convicted of first-degree murder of the slang. He was like one coroner convicted of that killing of, let's say, 25 people. Mass murder. And they really found him guilty. Now, what would you do? 
You're the judge of the court, and you have to pass the final verdict. Jury comes back, deliberates for a short time, and says guilty, and we recommend the death sentence. You're the father. You love your boy. He has made deliberate selfish choices. There's no excuse for him. There's no extenuating circumstances. Now, what do you do? If you were God, what would you do? Could you just simply say to a court, he's my son, I love him. I'm sorry, I'll just have to, you know, I'd really like to uphold the rights of these people that died, but what can I do? He's my son. Case dismissed. Can you do that? Not if you want to stay judge. But can you say to the court, on the other hand, listen, we will uphold your rights, kill him. What does that do to your father's heart? What would you do if you were God? You know what God did? The judge of the universe put in the death sentence. He passed the worst he could think of. Endless death. And he said to the sinner, you have a short time of parole to make your peace with your maker. Then on that awful day, they bring in the gas chamber. And the boy sees he really is going to die. Before the eyes of the watching court and the watching world, the gas chamber is brought in. And as the boy, the full shock of what he's done bursts in him, I'm going to die, he starts to shake. He really sees his life is going to be taken. The full effect of the penalty comes down on his life. And then the judge steps down off his bench, takes off his robes and walks over to the boy. And he says, son, step out. And he dies in his son's place. Now, what does that do to the boy? What does that do to the world? That's what God did. And that's the atonement. And you preach there. And you'll see kids broke. What has happened to our concept of the death of Jesus Christ? Do we understand what the atonement means to God? I don't like running sessions on the atonement because I never get them finished. What is God going to do now? He has done everything he can do. There is nothing more God can do to restore a selfish man. And he is willing, by his grace and his mercy, on the grounds of his free love, to give man a full, complete pardon. But that does not mean that pardon comes without conditions. If it costs God his son and Christ his life to bring that pardon, it will cost man something. This is not something he is earning. This is not something in order that he may qualify this. It is something without which he cannot be given the gift of free life. If you are in a court and you are going to pardon a man who has broken the law, then the court demands of that man three things. He must admit his guilt. That's what the kid with the cookie has to do. Esther says, yes, mommy, I really did steal a cookie and break down and admit his guilt. It's what God asks of the sinner, and you can call it honesty if you like, or confessing. Secondly, he must stop what he's doing. He must turn from his crimes. 
And the Bible has a name for that, and it's called repent. No judge in his right mind can pardon a man who says, I appreciate you forgiving me for the men I killed yesterday, the one I'm going to kill today, and the one I intend to kill tomorrow. He'll be sent to the death sentence right there in the court. The judge will say, boy, give this guy the gas before he kills all, all of us in this place. Do you see what we've done? We've confused the grounds and the conditions of salvation. We've messed these two up and we've said, listen, God gives you this all free. It's nothing that you do. And just simply turned it into a cheap thing. And then there is another condition. That in future, he will be a loyal citizen of the government he's refused to be a part of. In future, he will do that law of happiness. And the Bible says we must pledge allegiance to the governor of the universe. And the Bible calls that faith. And until Jesus Christ is enthroned as Lord of the heart, that is no Bible faith. Faith is a loyalty of love to the word of God, both living and written. And there is the message of the gospel. What a simple, beautiful thing it is. Marriage is an illustration of this. Very lovely illustration. What happens in marriage? Two kids who have seen the love and the value of each other say goodbye to all their old boyfriends. Before the world, they say goodbye to all those old boyfriends and girlfriends. I used to knock around with him, her, and her, but no longer. I found the one that I love. And then publicly they walk down an aisle in front of a group of people and make an open confession. I love him. She loves me. Together we're going to live our lives devoted to each other. They have pledged themselves publicly and openly to each other. And then they go home from that wedding ceremony and live as if it's true. And the crusade, I preach, ask young people to turn their lives away from the past, to give up all their old friendships and habits, to come openly and stand before God and say, Oh God, all these years I look for myself, and today I pledge my love and my life to you. And then ask them to publicly come and stand in front of a group of people and to say, From this day on I will serve Jesus Christ, and then go home and live. Because it is true. Do you see this? And what? emphasis do you put on which one? It depends on what kind of kid he is. If he's careless and unconcerned, we've got to run over things like the spiritual checkup and say, have a look at your life and break before God and see the rottenness of your sin. I spend a lot of time on this if he's careless. On the other hand, if he's awakened and he really feels rotten about what he's done, then I spend more time on repentance. So you must be willing to give those things up. And a kid will come to you and I'll say, listen, do I have to give up this? And I'll say, yes. That's probably the only thing you do have to give up. Because that's what God is dealing with you on. Surrender that because Jesus loves you and he cares about you and he asks you to. And you will know salvation. And what if a kid comes up and he's willing to turn his back on everything and he hates what he's done? What do I say? Do I go through all this stuff? Of course I don't. I say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and I'll be saved. But this is intelligent witnessing. Do you see what I mean? It's not going and saying a bunch of magic words and hoping something will happen. 
Then you might have kids coming out saying, well, I did something, but I don't know what it was, and I turned from something, and I don't know what that was either. Then you might have to learn any Mickey Mouse little plans to go around and say things to people. You'll be able to preach and speak intelligently to kids and work with the Holy Ghost in salvation. Otherwise, it becomes a magic thing. We say magic words, and we stand back and hope something happens. That's terrible. That's, that's a sacramentalism and superstition. That's not the gospel. Now, the conditions are simple then. Simple, but not easy. Never tell a kid it's easy. I'll say, look, this is costly. No, it costs you everything you've got. It costs Jesus everything you've got. While we're talking about this, I just want to quickly mention, because most of you are ministers, about invitations. I have just about given up the hands-up thing. See? I've also given up on music and invitations, just as I am especially. I've given up on a lot of different things that I used to use. And... Uh, there are different ways you can use invitations. You have to use wisdom according to circumstances. One of the best ways, if you've got a coffee bar type thing and the secular kids, say, how many of you are interested in knowing more about the gospel? We have some things here. If you want one of these, please just raise your hand as you're over there. We'll give you one. We have kids circuit. This one's we use in the coffee bar. The kids will give you these. And these kids, see, they'll take it, look at it, and they'll say, now, we're going to explain this so all of you interested come. And, and then we go through the thing in detail. And then we put them off the prayer. Do you see that? That's a very simple thing. Then in the church, what do I use? I use a simple stand to your feet, right where you are, no music, no nothing. Stand there, and, and the Lord gave me an invitation. That I use, I ask the guys to stand first, because I'm trying to restore the leadership to the men. Stand. And I give them 60 seconds, that's all. I have two 60-second invitations. And I'll time it. 60 seconds. In the next 60 seconds, if you want to give everything you've got to God, stand to your feet. Right here without any music, without... I tell them that, see? Like I'm telling you. Stand to your feet. And the Lord will anoint your invitation and you preach His message. The silence. I don't... In the silence, try to, you know sing songs into their ears and stuff. I let the Holy Ghost have a whack at them. That's his job. You stand there and you expect God to do something with those kids. I pray before God, you work with these kids. When you give your invitation, five minutes after you start preaching, that's when you give your invitation. Tonight you can come to God. Tonight you can give your life to Jesus Christ. Tonight he can change you. That's when you start invitation. Five minutes after you begin. You listen to Billy Graham when he preaches. You find out when he gives an invitation. You'll learn some things from that man of God. Sixty seconds goes past. The guys that God is dealing with will stand. I don't want any Mickey Mouse kids. When they stand up, I spend five minutes then trying to talk them out of what they've just done. I ask the girls, those who want to stand and join these guys who stood, and then I spend five minutes making sure they mean business. So if you don't mean business, please sit down. If you're not willing to give everything you've got to Jesus Christ, please sit down. It would be better that you sit down. 
If you're not willing to give everything you have, everything you are, turn your back on your old way of life, say goodbye to your friends, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your dreams, future plans, ambitions, please sit down. Don't dishonor God and make yourself a hypocrite by sin. When I stand, brother, let me do Then you want to see what happens afterwards. And those kids come. You spend again, got, we use this little track counseling. The front thing tells essentially what the message should have said. And when they come, we go detail with them. And I tell them this, you get along with God, and a, a very simple illustration is a coin. I use this in almost all crusades. Coin has heads and tails. I said all Jesus wants you to do is very simple. Tails, turn your tail on your part. You've been going that way, finish. I hate what I've done, I turn my back on it. That's tail. Heads, give your life to a new master. You live for yourself, now live for Jesus. Boom, that's it. One coin. You see, a very simple thing. Now, how beautiful the gospel becomes when you've just got to challenge kids to being honest and you understand what the gospel is. Do you see how simple it is? How... What deliverance from all the little plans and the memorized little things you have? What power as you work with the Holy Ghost and say, the kid is not breaking, you go again over the honesty thing, again over the repentance thing, and the Holy Spirit will give you wisdom. He'll point out areas. The kid is being dishonest, the Lord will reveal to you by the word of knowledge or the word of wisdom what the kid's problem is. Show you. As you work with kids, you begin to understand their problems of bitterness and morality. There are signs in the back of the manual that have helped you out there. You can recognize things and say to this kid, your problem is you're bitter. Somebody's hurt you. Wham! Honesty. Wham! Salvation. What a fantastic thing. Does it work? Brother, I preached for three years the other way. Sin is a transmitted thing. Man can't do what God tells him to do. Believe on Jesus, and that's all it takes. For the last five years, nearly in this country, I have preached this message that God gave me as he began to deal with me. And I can count on the fingers of one hand the kids that have backslidden out of my personal ministry. And that means something to me. You say, do you get thousands and thousands running down altars? No. I don't care. The ones we have to That interests me. Leave that kid alone. Come back. Years later, he's still going on to Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that interests me. And I've been dead ever since to any other message. The ones that got on me. Are there dangers in preaching? Of course there are. One thing, you may get shot while you're doing it, but that's wrong. <laughs> Is this a popular message? Why don't more people preach it? That's what I've been asking. If this is so useful, why doesn't everybody preach it? That's why we're having this camp. If, if this was true, why doesn't the whole of the United States believe this? Why do you think we've got such a mess in the nation? High time we found out what God says. Preach it again. 
By the way, this session was supposed to be called Change of Conduct or Change Your Name. Finish with two or three illustrations here. The Change of Conduct or Change Your Name came from Alexander the Great, that mighty young man who beat up the whole world by the time he was 27 and wept because he had no more worlds to conquer. Alexander the Great was one day out in his camp, restless, like the young general he was, pacing through the camp with his Greek army, and he'd had various people out on sentry duty. And he went around checking them all very quietly, you know, just checking out, seeing how they were alert. Now, came up and he saw a young man, very tired after his day's duty, leaning against a tree and falling asleep on sentry duty. And Alexander sneaked up to him, And he grabbed him and go, oh, 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 you know, he was going to be attacked. But then he saw Alexander the Great. That was worse than being attacked by an enemy. Alexander grabbed him. He said, do you know what you've done? He's going to sleep on sentry duty. Lies all the men in this camp at the ten Do you know what you've done? He said, what is your name? Kids said, Alexander. Alexander. He said, what is your name? What's my feeling? He said, <laughs> Alexander, sir. Alexander Grant great held him. He looked in his eyes. He said, you change your conduct or change your name. Listen, brother. I don't have time to go into the whole thing about the carnal Christian. And we usually ask this question of the kid, have you accepted Jesus? Oh, yes. Thousands of problems, the kid is selfish as the day is long. We figure, well, he's done all that's necessary. must be somewhere else. I don't believe that anymore. I come back and I say, oh, really? Yeah, I've accepted Jesus. And then I say, has he accepted you? What do you mean? No. I said, I believe in Jesus. I said, does he believe in you? Do you know the people in Jesus' day who believed in Jesus and he didn't believe in them? Many believed in him, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew what was in their heart. So I don't take as a criterion the kid who says, I've accepted Jesus or I believe in Christ. I go back over repentance, see if he's ever done that. He has, and I say, well, you can be happy about one thing. You're not really saved. That's why you've got problems. <laughs> Kids self-destructs in front of your eyes, you know. He <laughs> says, what do you mean? So you've had all these problems? You're thinking rejecting Christianity, right? He says, yeah. Cheer up. You never had it. <laughs> the kid said, well, what's so good about that? I said, isn't it better to find out here than to cross the line and find out there? We really love them. Listen, you see a man burning, his house is burning down. If you really love him, you say, well, he's happy, he's enjoying himself. Pass on. When you shout and warn him, your house is burning down. You're inside. If we love kids, we'll rebuke them. I simply say to them kindly, and I don't get hard on their case. I said, there's a lot of different false things. I share from my own experience. I've been counterfeit for a number of years. I know what it's like. 
to believe in Jesus, and Jesus never believed in me. I want you to read this little sheet here and tell me whether you're really a Christian. And they come back to me. Sure. Well, good. That's where we start. You know. Now, friends, I want to take one last passage in Corinthians because the last moment you can always run back to this passage if your heart goes running after selfishness and say, well, I don't care what we preach here. I still believe you can be selfish and be a Christian because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 3, are you not carnal and walk as men? And Paul here is telling us about three different kinds of Christians. Two of them, there's a good Christian, he's a spiritual, there's a selfish, rotten, devil-pleasing Christian, he's carnal. And then there's an ordinary natural man, he's just an ordinary old sinner. I want you to know something. I studied the streams of classic theology, both Calvinistic and Armenian. I don't consider the words that the Lord has given me in either of these two streams. I don't go all God or all man. I believe the answer to the Gospel is the God-man Christ Jesus. Straight down the center. Go into a church. Believe it's all man thing. And I'll say, and if you grieve away the Holy Ghost, there's no thing you do in the world. He's saying, unless he helps you, you've had it. I'll go into Calvinistic church. Everybody believes they're all, you know, God will say what he want and say, you have not met his condition. Then he'll say, you wham in there. Get leaping from both sides. Right? Understand this. No stream in history, no classical stream, has ever believed in a carnal Christian, whatever their theology. The Calvinist said, God has chosen some men to be saved and some to be lost. I disagree with that. The Calvinist said this, though, and I'm talking about John Calvin. You prove your election by a holy life. You don't live a holy life, you're not elect. So did the Armenian. He may have said, well, it's up to man, what we do. But he never believed in a selfish system. How come we believe in it today? Brand new gospel. The last 60 years has sprung up. I could name to you a famous and prominent Bible teacher that put a little footnote in the bottom of his reference Bible that helped no end. Could name to you some English society that began this, that helped no end, and also some very large organizations today that pushed this. Let's see whether the Bible says you can be carnal and be a Christian. Take your little green sheet and have a look at the signs of the carnal man. Inside that, just read it, that's all I ask. See what the Bible says a carnal man is. Comes from two Greek words, sark, sarkakos, flesh, fleshless. The Bible gives us a lot of signs about the carnal man. Also tells us he is condemned. He's under the law of sin and death. He minds the things of the flesh. To be carnally minded is death. He is an enemy of God. 
He is not subject to the law of God. He cannot be subject to the law of God. He is out in the flesh. He is out of Christ. He is none of his. He shall die. All right? You believe in a carnal Christian. But that carnal Christian will be in hell. On the other hand, the spiritual man is contrasted with the carnal natural man. He walks not after the flesh, free from the law of sin and death. He minds the things of the Spirit. Spiritually minded is life and peace. He's a friend of God. The rule of his life is he is subject to God's love law. He pleases God. He's not in the flesh. He's in Christ and the Spirit of God is in him. He's a child of God and he shall live. And then Galatians gives us a list of the carnal man. Galatians 5, 16 to 26 tells us what the works of the flesh, sark, sarkakot is, the signs of the man who is carnal, adultery, fornication, and cleanness, lasciviousness, jealousy, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath. Watch these words, strife, sedition, heresy, envying, marksmen, remember, murder, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of which I told you before, as I've told you in time past, Paul writing, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. The same Paul who wrote the book of Galatians wrote Romans. The same Paul wrote Corinthians. And Paul doesn't contradict himself under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. He knew what a carnal man was. More signs are given in Peter. Those that walk after the carnality or the flesh, sark, sarkakos, presumptuous self-will, all of these things, thoughts are and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceiving while they feast on you, having eyes full of adultery, cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, heart exercised with covetous practiceness, who are they, these carnal men? Cursed children which have forsaken the right way and have gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Bozo, who loved the wages of unrighteousness but was rebuked for his iniquity. Who are they, these carnal men? Wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest. Where are they headed, these carnal men, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever? And that doesn't sound like heaven. So the future of the carnal man is not promising. <laughs> and I want to tell you what I don't like about the carnal Christian thing. You make two kinds of Christians, it invariably puts down the first experience. You make two different kinds of experiences, you say, all right, two kinds of Christians. How complete must man's salvation be? And who's doing it? To say carnal is to say that God heart saves a man. And it's funny the people who talk about carnal talk about God doing the work. What is Paul talking about here? Is he calling his Christians carnal? Sure is. Slapping them across the face with a glove. Same way as I would if I went to a bunch of kids and said, you are 
just like devils do. Is he establishing a special case here for a third brand of Christians? Not the ones who walk the straight and narrow, nor the broad and wide, but the middle class freeway? Is he setting up a whole case for Christians to be like this? Not on your life. He comes up and he says, when you do these things, don't you know that you are behaving like the unconverted? And I need two reasons why people do that. One, because they're ignorant of what the gospel actually does, which is a maturity thing. Or number two, they're not really saved at all. When I go in, I'll teach for a while and see what happens. I'll tell you the difference between a Christian who is ignorant and the carnal man who is a counterfeit convert. You teach a real Christian what the gospel says and he changes his life instantaneously and immediately. Teach the counterfeit convert and he will reject and run away from anything that brings him closer to Christ. That's the difference. I met a lot of kids that did not understand because some of us preachers did a lousy job in their counseling. They have problems for the rest of their lives. Somebody comes and kindly shares them, and they say, Wow, I wasn't properly saved. Say, Well, you sure weren't saved from sin. And then the deliverance that comes to their lives, the beautiful thing. But doesn't this passage talk about a man who can live selfishly, and when he gets to heaven, he just loses his reward? Doesn't that talk about that? Read it, brethren. A simple little rule of understanding the Bible is that you read everything in its context. And see what Paul says. He comes up and he says to these men, for where there is among you, and then he says three words, envy, strife, and division. Are you not carnal and walk as men? He lifts those same three words in Galatians. The signs of a man who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now read on. What were these doing, these Christians? Were they running around having sexual intercourse with each other? Were they being homosexuals or drug addicts? No, they were simply arguing about which preacher was the best one. I wish all our problems were that simple. What cases we make for our sins. How easy it is to sit down and construct a theology that will allow us to live whichever way we like and find plenty of chapters and verses to do it. And what does Paul talk about? He says, who are these preachers? We're just instruments that God has. Don't say, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos. Paul has a deeper mind. Apollos has the golden tongue. And then the spiritual one. Well, we're of Jesus. We don't care. We don't in this personality, yeah. more spiritual. All kind of, you have this one who say, we're of Jesus, and you too. And what do they say? Paul says, we are just workmen. All of us have one foundation, and no other foundation can be laid other than this. The Lord lays the foundation. What is the foundation? Being saved. Timothy tells us what this is. In the book of Timothy, see what the foundation is? Second Timothy chapter 2, 
Verse 19, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, and let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. There's the foundation of salvation. Repentance from sin. Name the name of Jesus Christ as his Lord and Master. That's the foundation. Being properly saved is giving up sin. And then on this foundation you build a ministry. And it is about the ministry that Jesus is talking. And when Paul says here, the works that we have, he is not talking about that which put his life together for salvation. That has nothing to do. Salvation is not a thing by works. He's talking about the kind of ministry you have, and preachers write it down. This is a sermon for preachers. It is a text every preacher should read and tremble in his boots. God says, On your foundation stone you build a ministry. Do you preach what Jesus told you to preach? You may get saved yourself, really saved. But do you preach a gospel that God can justify? Do you ever heard about the vacuum cleaner salesman? He wanted to sell vacuum cleaners. They gave him the list, the sample, the order blanks. He came back at the end of the day and they said to him, how did you do? He said, fantastic. They said, how many did you sell? He said, I sold 36 vacuum cleaners. They said, you sold what? He said, I sold 36 vacuum cleaners. I can't believe we've never had anybody sell 36 vacuum cleaners in a month. What did you do? He said, I just went and showed him the sample. I said, what kind did you sell? He said, the big ones with all gadgets. They said, I can't believe. Are you some kind of super being? What kind of commission are you going to get? 36 vacuum cleaners, 150 bucks a piece. He said, $150. I sold them for a dollar. <laughs> What have you been preaching, brother? <laughs> Here's a preacher and he stands before God. He's just died, shipped off. Says, praise the Lord, God. Oh, I've been preaching for 50 years. Shipped 5,000 souls at least ahead of me. The Lord looks at him with sadness in his eyes and he points over the corner and says, see those three over there? They're yours. And they came to spite your ministry. What happened to his works, brother? When the reapers, which are the angels, appear, they will separate the wheat from the chaff and gather the wheat and gather the chaff to be burned. Your ministry. Rick Howard had a vision that God gave him. Ministering as a young man, very garbage in his ministry at that time. And a man came to him and said, Rick, you ever read about the judgment seat of Christ? Rick said, I know it's in the Bible, ha ha. And he said, No, I'm serious. Have you ever read what the Bible has to say about the judgment seat of Christ? He said, I suppose it's there. And the guy gave him the scriptures. He said, you read that. 
He read the scriptures on me, and he fell asleep, and in his sleep he had a dream, and he said, whenever my dad used to call me, it was Ricky, unless I was in trouble, in which case, it was Richard. And he said, in my dream, I had a funny dream. He said, I was standing on a plane. And he said, there were all kinds of people across this plane. He said, I looked up and I saw the Sunday school teacher that led me to Christ. Sitting in front of this lady was a little pile that looked like sticks and stuff. And he said, I looked and I saw a guy who had been with me in Bible college that had rejected a call of the ministry and gone out in the business world. He had this big pile of stuff in front of him. And he said, I looked up and he said, I saw something scared me to death. I saw this creature, wide hair, holding a gigantic torch in his hand. And his eyes were burning like flamethrowers. And he said, he walked among the people and he said, he came up to my Sunday school teacher. And he called by a name. And he called a name, he dropped the torch. And there was a... <coughs> And all that vanished, and there was a pile of sparkling, glittering things. She picked them up in love and held them up to him. And he smiled, and he turned around. And he walked over to where this young man stood. Rick first saw this huge pile of stuff in front of him. And this figure, frightening figure with white hair, he said, I never read the book of Revelation before now. The figure called out, the boy's name, the torch dropped. <laughs> that it left a huge black circle of nothing. And he said, you could hear that boy's cry go over the plane. Ah! And he said, that figure turned with those burning eyes. He turned and he looked at me. And he held up the torch. And he said, Richard. And he dropped the torch. And I woke up. And I got on my knees and consecrated myself to the ministry. Change your conduct or change your name. Let's close in prayer. So change your name or change your conduct. Powerful message from Winky Prattney. Glad to have been here with you this week on the MOH podcast number eight. And we'll see you next week for number nine.